Now please remain standing while um, I read the part of the passage, God's Word, which is going to be the foundation of today's sermon, taken from John chapter 10, verses 11 to 21. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not the shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fault. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of, he, of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon, and this is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Please be seated. Now, friends, the, there's one question that I would like us to consider today. It's a very simple, straightforward question, and the question is this. Is Jesus a savior worth following? Is it worth your time, your tears, your money, your reputation, your life to follow Jesus? Now, knowing some of you, I'm willing to bet I happened to find a $100 bill by accident in my pants this morning, so I'm willing to bet that most of you would say yes. Jesus is worth following. Or at least some of you have a positive regard towards Jesus. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here this morning. This is Jesus' people. This is a church after all. But friend, even if we say yes to that question, even if we agree to say that Jesus is worth following, our lives very seldom reflect such regard. Our lives very seldom reflect that we have a savior worth following. So let me put you through a simple test. People, especially those who are close to us, those who know us, can see what kind of sports team we follow. People can see what kind of TV show or what kind of movie we watch based on, for example, if we laugh at the same jokes, the same inside jokes that only people who watch this particular show understand. People can also see what kind of celebrity gossip we enjoy. People can also see what kind of hobby or toys we pursue and so on and so forth. Why? Because they can see it by the way we spend our times, our tears, our money, in, in following, watching, enjoying, and pursuing them. When we do these things, whether these things are good or bad, or anything in between, we are basically saying, you are worth my time. You are worth staying up till 3 a.m. in the morning. You are worth my tears. 
You are worth my money. If you have one hour available where you can think, talk about, play, or do anything you want to, what would you do? That's actually a very good test to know because whatever you do is most likely the thing or the person to which you say you are worth it. Now, whether that thing or person or thing is actually worth it or not, that's another question. But this is the question we're considering today. Is Jesus a savior worth following? Now, what I'm going to do today is not to show you which ones of these things are pretty neutral, for example, sports team or hobby, or could be harmful, such as excessive watching or playing games, or even sinful. I'm pretty sure you're smart enough to know which one these things are. I hope to show through the passage which we just read this very simple thing. I hope to show you that Jesus really is worth following. And when I say that Jesus is worth following, I'm not just talking, although these things are good in and of themselves, I'm not just talking about praising and singing praises with God's people on Sunday at church. I'm not just saying about, uh, talking about if, you peop- if people ask you, are you a Christian, are you a follower of Jesus, and say, yep, unashamedly, I go to church not only on Sunday, I sometimes join prayer meeting, I'm in this and that ministry. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that when we talk about following, we use the biblical world of following. That means investing or putting um, our whole life on this particular person, and in this case, Jesus. Following as in worth spending and giving your whole life on. And I hope by reminding us of the worth of Jesus as the good shepherd, our lives will change. What we watch, what we follow, what we enjoy, what we pursue, what we spend our time, tears, and money on, would change to reflect to others that we truly have a Savior worth following. Just as we sang a few minutes ago, guys, shepherd of my soul, I give you full control. We're basically saying you are worth me giving full control. Wherever you may lead, I will follow. I think apart for newly acquired boyfriend or girlfriend, you seldom say these words, right? Wherever you may lead, I will follow. I have made the choice to listen to your voice. Wherever you may lead, I will go. Now, this term shepherd is a very beautiful, and it's one, probably one of the richest terms in the Bible. Shepherd talks about God being the shepherd of his people. The source of comfort, security, love, and in human terms, at least in, the, in Israelite history, it, uh, God's being, God being a shepherd is represented by the kings and religious leaders of Israel. So these kings that you, prob- you probably know some of them, David, Saul, and the rest of them, they're God's shepherds for his people. But if you know your Bible history, Unfortunately, the kings and the religious leaders and many of the prophets, they fail to be faithful shepherds. 
And that's why God eventually promised them a faithful king, a Messiah, to be their faithful shepherds. Now, if you heard of a prophet named Ezekiel, who ministered around five, 590 to 670 before Christ, approximately around 370 years after the death of King David, Ezekiel has many prophecies. But one of the most important prophecies which backgrounds this particular passage today is about unfaithful shepherds. If you have your Bible, you can open in Ezekiel 34. There's a long passage, around 30 uh, verses, where God condemns these shepherds in the strongest word possible. You don't need to know Hebrew. You don't need to know history. You can just read those verses and you can tell God is angry at some people. And these people happen to be not Israel's enemies, not the Philistines, not the Amorites, not the Egyptians, but his own kings and religious leaders. It's probably some of the strongest words that God ever spoken against his own people are in Ezekiel 34. And yet towards the end of that chapter, God says this. He promises, and I will set up over them, that is my people, who? One shepherd. And who is that shepherd? My servant David. Remember I mentioned earlier when Ezekiel spoke this word, David the king had already been dead by around 370 years. So he's definitely not talking about the king David. He's talking about another David. David's greatest son. And he shall feed them, he continues, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. So this shepherd is yet to come. He's not here yet, but I promise you, he will come and I, the Lord, will be their God. So that's a covenantal language, a relationship language. Okay? And my servant David shall be a prince, a king, a true leader, the point leader among them, I am the Lord, I have spoken. Which basically says, this will happen. Now, when I was listening to Son's sermon last Sunday, towards, in the middle, towards the end, I thought, today's sermon is going to be a perfect recap of that sermon. Because this conversation is a continuing conversation from what we've been seeing in the last two weeks in John chapter 9. You see, just as the leaders in Ezekiel's time were unfaithful by not looking out for, by not caring for God's people, same thing happened with the religious leaders in Jesus' days. Their unfaithfulness to God's people is shown by how they treat and rejected the blind man's testimony. You probably heard saying that says, you can tell a person's character by how he treats another person who can do nothing for, you, for, for, for him. Okay? The most useless, unworthy person, you see how you treat that person, that's, that's, that's a good reflection of your character. And you probably, you, you already know how they treat this blind man's testimony. Jesus restores his sight, and instead of rejoicing with this miraculous healing, they actually cast him out and even mock him. And now in John chapter 10, we see that Jesus says, 
I am the true shepherd. I am the true shepherd promised by God to lead my people out of darkness into his marvelous light. So is Jesus worth following? Of course. I could give you 10, 20, 30 reasons. You could spend 30 hours just exploring that question. But I'm going to keep it simple today by just saying, by giving you the answer up front. This is the reason why Jesus is worth following. Jesus is worth following because he gave his life for us. Why is it worth investing or spending or giving your whole life, time, talent, money, everything to Jesus? Because he gave his life for us, for me, for you, for his people. Let's read those verses again. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolves coming, the wolf coming, and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. It's another way of Jesus describing the religious leaders of his days. Now, hopefully you've seen far enough now that when Jesus says he's the good shepherd, he's not saying I'm a nice person. Or he's actually not even saying I'm a good person. When he says I'm the good shepherd, he's using the Old Testament, the Ezekiel language. You know that shepherd that God promised you some 600 years ago? My servant David, I am that guy. The king you've been waiting for, the Messiah you've been praying, praying for, I am that shepherd. I am that God who's been shepherding his people. I am the God of David. That's the reason, guys, why, why I uh, asked you to read Psalm 23 earlier. The Lord is my shepherd. It's a psalm of David. Who's David? The king of Israel, the shepherd of his people. And by saying the Lord is my shepherd, David is saying, I'm not the ultimate king. I'm not the, the king of Israel. There's a higher king than I, and that's the Lord. David, the king, ascribes ultimate kingship, ultimate shepherdhood, not to himself, but to God. That's around 1,000 years before Jesus came. And now Jesus, David's greatest son, basically saying this, I am that Lord of Psalm 23. I am that Lord of whom my great-great-grandfather talked about. I am that son of David. Now, If you think about the word of shepherd, I don't know what picture comes to your mind, but shepherding is not a job for the weak, for the coward. Shepherding is a very manly job. It's a very tiring job. It's a very dangerous job. Actually, I, uh, in the Bible, there's a 
brief description from David himself. You probably know this incident, David versus Goliath. What we probably don't know is between before David defeats Goliath, there's this conversation between David and King Saul. And in that brief description, we see a snippet, a preview of how shepherds worked back in the days. This is what David said to Saul. He says, your servant, that is David, used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, notice this, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. You don't get any manly than that, guys. And this time, David's greatest descendant, Jesus says, I am that kind of shepherd. Jesus is the manliest man that ever lived. So get rid of that idea and notion of Jesus. I know he says that he's meek and mild, but we tend to think him as someone who is a bit effeminate, very tender, very frail, easily broken, crying here and there. No, he's the man's man. He's the true man. But not only is a shepherd, he also says he's the good shepherd. Now this word good is a Again, it's another rich word, just like the word shepherd. And it's a word that basically describes beauty, nobility, excellency. He might as well say, I'm the beautiful shepherd, not because he's handsome, but because of what we are soon going to see. I'm the noble shepherd. I'm the excellent shepherd. I am the altogether worthy shepherd. Friends, if you know any human leader, it doesn't matter whether in church, outside church, living or dead, no matter how admirable, no matter how good, you got to admit that the closer and the longer you know them, including the closer and the longer you know me, eventually you will find many things about them that will disappoint. You will be disappointed. Even the best of them can never be altogether worthy. They, they are very good at certain areas, but they're hopeless in other areas. I still remember many years ago, um, I think uh, uh, Tim Keller, whom we really uh, admire in, in, in the circles, um, uh, I think in public he, he, he says that he and his wife are very hopeless in terms of managing, I think, their admin or their finances. They need someone to help them. And those are the best of them. Even the best of our leaders can never be altogether worthy, but not Jesus. Jesus is the ultimately good shepherd, the ultimately noble, altogether worthy shepherd, greater than David, greater than any kings or ruler or religious uh, leaders before and after. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. But this goodness, this beauty, this nobility is expressed in the most interesting way. Notice this. I am the good shepherd because the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The goodness of the shepherd, the nobility, the excellency, the altogether worthiness of the shepherd is shown by his willingness to lay down 
his life for them. That means Jesus is always and all the time fully aware that his mission as a savior involves his death. His death is non-negotiable. His death is not some kind of possibility that may or not may happen. It, it, it is planned. In fact, it has been planned from eternity past. It has been planned before Adam and Eve fell and caused the fall to impact the whole humankind. He's aware that his mission as Savior involves his death. In fact, if you notice in this passage, not only once, not only twice, but four times Jesus says, he lays down his life for the sheep. And that word for, F-O-R, small, but very impactful. In the Gospel of John, it almost always, primarily, so you can say always, talks about doing something on behalf of someone else. Doing something in place or to replace somebody or something else. So Jesus lays down his life in place of his sheep. Jesus lays down his life on behalf of his sheep. Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. Now this is a remarkable statement if you think about it. Now that you, you heard a bit about shepherds being manly and strong and dangerous job. Because a shepherd's job description is to be strong and manly enough to live for the sheep, not to die for them, right? It's pretty useless to have a shepherd who says, okay, one of my job description is I give my life for the sheep. What's the use of you if you die for the sheep? If the shepherd dies, the reasoning goes, who's going to look after the sheep? But obviously, guys, Jesus here is using a picture language as he always does. Because his main point is not so much who is going to look after the sheep. In this picture language, he's basically saying that the sheep is in a far greater danger, the danger from the wolves. As we see already, they are under the danger of the religious leaders. One writer puts it this way. The religious leaders are not praying for the people, that's P-R-A-Y, pray. They are praying on them, that's P-R-E-Y, on them. They are not praying for their people, they are praying on them. They are not dying on behalf of their people, their people are dying because of them. So what Jesus is saying here is this, I'm the good shepherd, and you, my people, are in far greater danger than Goliath. You are in far greater danger than any invading army. You are in far greater danger than Rome, the current Roman occupation of you bring back to 20th, 20th century. If you are a huge pro-Israel person, which I'm not, just saying, God's people are in far greater danger than any anti-Israel nation or sentiments. The danger of God's people is the danger of all people everywhere. That is the danger of eternal death. The danger of separation from God forever. The danger that can only be averted by Jesus giving his life for his sheep. That's the point. He gave his life out of his own will. 
Jesus is not, nobody forces Jesus' hand to give his life. And Jesus gave his life not grumbling, not complaining, but out of his great love. Out of, in fact, out of the love of the Father, he sent his son. That's John 3.16, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus is not a victim, but he gave his life purposely. He gave his life willingly. In fact, in verse 18, he says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on, of my, out of my own accord, out of my own desire, intention. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Speaking about the resurrection. Not only out of his will, and we already saw earlier, on behalf in place of his sheep, it, it basically says that Jesus' death shows that only God can do for us what we can never accomplish for ourselves. Friends, contrast this with other religion or philosophies. I don't have time to number or name them. But they all fall into this category. Either I do everything, all everything to save myself, to get to heaven, to get to enlightenment, to get to success, whatever, or I do some, part of it. So I meet with God sort of halfway. I actually met with some of my non-Christian friends who acknowledges that uh, we can't save ourselves. We need God's help. But the way they think in their mind is, I need to do my part so my part is good enough for God to do his part. FYI, that's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. That's totally in contradiction by what Jesus is saying here and everywhere else in the Bible. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I took their place. I'm not meeting them halfway. I'm not letting you do your best and I will do the rest. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is I, the altogether worthy one, give my sheep all lays down his life for the sheep. It means um, Jesus fully takes up the death that we deserve on himself. Friends, there's a story. I don't know who wrote it. The title is The Long Silence. This is how the story goes. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great field before the throne of God. Many of them were, were afraid because of the brilliant shining light before them. But there, there's a group in, out front talking heatedly. They're not talking shamefully, they're actually talking with a lot of anger. And these are some of their conversations. One says, how dare God judge us? How does he know about suffering? And the one who says this is a young girl who opened her sleeve and revealed a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. Me and my family, we were terrorized, we were raped, we were beaten, we were suffocated to death. There's another young boy with a dark skin. He lowered his, his collar and showed a, a mark 
of an ugly rope burn. And what about this? Look, I got hung for no crime but being black. Another person, part of the crowd, there was a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer? It's not my fault. And far across the field, there were hundreds of such people. Every one of them complains against God for the evil and suffering he permits in this world. How lucky God. God is so lucky because he lives in heaven where it's all sweetness and light and music and dancing. There's no weeping and fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that men have been forced to endure in this world? They say God leads a pretty safe, secure, and sheltered life. So after a while, each of these groups, they send forth their leader. And these leaders are chosen because they have suffered the most in their life. So they sent a Jew, a black-skinned person, someone from Hiroshima, a child who is horribly deformed because of a genetic disorder. And in the center of their field, they consult with each other. And at last, they are ready to present their case. What they think to be a very clever case. They said, basically, before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what, he, what they have endured. Their decision was this. God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let people question whether he's a, a legal child or a bastard. Give him a work so difficult, so dangerous, that even his family thinks he's crazy. Let him be betrayed by his closest friend. Let him be falsely accused. Let him be tried by a court that is so unfair and eventually be convicted by a judge that there is such a coward. Let him be tortured slowly and painfully. And last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Let him die. Let him die so that can, there can be no doubt that he truly died. And let there be a great host of witnesses to surely see that he really died. And as each leader announced this sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up among the crowd. Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. That's what God deserves. But as the sentence continues, there was a long silence. No one says another word. Nobody moved. For suddenly, it dawns on them that God had already served his sentence. Now, friends, I have to be honest. I don't like the idea about God being judged and having to serve his sentence, but you see, this story can only be written and understood better through the gospel. In fact, Jesus' story is better. It actually happened. Jesus' story is better because God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all planned this work of salvation together. Jesus gave, is to give up his life for his sheep, for you, for me. So is he worth following? Yes, he is. Jesus is worth following because he gave his life for us.
If he has given his life for us, what more could he give? So in closing, let me encourage you to think about some questions. Friends, knowing that Jesus gave up his life for us and that he's our good shepherd, how does that comfort you today? How does that make you trusting and loving him more? Another question is, is your life reflecting the word of your Savior in terms of spending how you spend your time, your tears, your money? Do you seek to get to know him? And we approach uh, the Lord's table this morning. Let us also reflect together what great sacrifice he has done for us by giving his body to be broken as his blood to be shed. If you're not a believer in Jesus, where do you, or what do you base your worth on? Jesus is worth following. And lastly, you may think that the, the role of shepherding and leading only belongs to a select group of people, religious leaders, pastors. No. There is, in a very true sense, a lot of us are shepherds too. We are under shepherds in our family as fathers, mothers. We are under shepherds in our churches as Bible study leaders. We are under shepherds among our peers, friends, leading them to Jesus. So we are all, in many ways, as Christians, are called, in a sense, to shepherd others. And if we are called as under shepherds, how does Jesus' shepherding, his willingness to give his life for us, shape the way we shepherd them? Let us pray. Our Father, thank you for reminding us 